0: On May 14th, an angry white male executed a racially motivated mass shooting at a grocery store in a predominantly black Buffalo, New York neighborhood, killing 10 people. The shooting was planned, and the shooter left a manifesto explaining that his act of violence was based on the white replacement conspiracy theory. This theory basically argues that white folks are being purposefully replaced by immigrants and the growing racial diversity in the United States. Charleston, El Paso, Pittsburgh, San Diego, and on— A lone white supremacist shoots up a public place. He kills a number of minorities. The media issues wall-to-wall coverage. The pundits, like me, get called for interviews. Investigations and commissions are called. Reports are issued. The news cycle dies down. People wonder what they can do or read to understand, and then we move on. And then, a lone white supremacist shoots up a public place and Groundhog Day restarts.
1: Welcome to the Chicago Justice Podcast. I'm your host, Tracy Siska. Off the top, there was a clip of our guest today, Dr. Joseph Lynn, who is the Executive Director for Equality and Inclusion in the Division of Academic Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion, and the Associate Professor of Curriculum and Instruction at Northern Illinois University. If you're listening on the podcast, please subscribe. If you're watching on YouTube, please smash the subscribe and like buttons. So it really helps out this channel you want to get involved about in our work, cjpnation.org. You want to find out more about our work, chicagojustice.org. And if you want to support our work financially, go to patreon.org. Today we're discussing race and policing in the United States. So a longtime friend of mine sent one of Dr. Flynn's perspectives to us. Um, perspectives he does for WNIU Radio, Northern Public Radio at uh, Northern Illinois University. The first one was racial groundhog days, and it was about America's white, racially motivated mass shootings and the um, the country's response. Thoughts and prayers, ladies and gentlemen. Thoughts and prayers. You can not racially motivated, at least as far as we know, but you can look at the response in Maine and what the response has been. We also covered a fear of ethnic studies, how Rittenhouse, and who was let down by the verdicts. To really in depth and interesting interview. I hope you really enjoy it. I'll be back with you after to give you a little wrap up. I screw up everything though. Professor Professor Joseph Flynn, thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate it.
0: Ah, uh, thanks for having me. I appreciate the invitation.
1: So I really like the stuff you've published uh, really struck a chord with me. Um, I came to know about this because we one of your colleagues is a friend of mine for like um, forty years. Um, but that said, you cover a lot of issues related to crime, the criminal justice system, race, um, and knowledge and like what people want to know or don't want to know, or don't want to discuss. So we're going to talk a little bit about that. And here's one, I mean, you think about with Trump and everything that's going on, why do you think such a large percentage, whatever we want to argue that percentage is of white America doesn't want to know about the history? is it is it just cuz they're worried about the facts going to challenge their hatred for other groups is this about hate is it about bad education what do you think's at the core of that
0: well, let's just dive right in right yeah <laughs> <laughs> um i i would say that i think it's 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 how white supremacy works um white supremacy works by doing the best it can um, to be concealed. And so when, like everything thing that you said, I think is a part of it, of all of this, you know, um, you know, famed ignorance, um, all the way to um, many white folks not wanting to be labeled racist, um, because that produces a certain kind of stereotype that many white folks don't really want to align themselves with, even if they're actual Overt behaviors might reflect that, right? Um, but you know, not wanting to know certain aspects of history or looking at uh, uncovered or unobscured histories and disregarding them—all of that kind of works to reinscribe these uh, behaviors and systemic, both individual behaviors and systemic behaviors that breed white supremacy
1: Ooh, that's a word a lot of people get really nervous about i am totally i totally agree with you but like you hear white supremacy it's like oh my god i would never oh really <laughs> yeah check and, yourself my friend right and and the thing that's
0: that's fascinating about it to me is there's this assumption that if you say something like white supremacy then that means that There's this idea that every white person person is supreme over everyone else, right? And so the immediate comeback is, well, I'm not supreme, much like I'm not privileged because I don't have this, I don't have that, so on and so forth, without recognizing that it's not about what you have and what you don't have materially, necessarily, or economically. It's about a whole host of attitudes, behaviors, dispositions, approaches to life, understanding um, that you have access to if you can be labeled white. Right. And so when you look at, for example, your typical American history curriculum, um, your American history um course and this curriculum, whiteness is never never talked about in the margins of the textbooks right it's always the main text and the story is shaped around the experiences and the history of this larger collective group called americans and occasionally the experiences of other people are included in that story but those inclusions aren't the main story right yeah
1: absolutely and this goes on to my next question I'm trying to get at the heart of why, and you write a little bit about this in one of your posts, which links will be to all his posts that we're discussing today will be in the show notes. What do you think's behind the fear or hatred? Not sure what you would call it around ethnic studies classes, right? Fair. Ethnic study departments, curriculums. What is, is it, is it fear? Is it fear? Because I've always thought about this in, um, the issues around straightness and queerness, especially as it relates to men, I think generally men are predators. Uh, I just, the way I view straight men, that's my history that I know, right? So are predators, and they don't want anyone else objectifying them. They don't care if they're objectified, but God forbid someone objectify them, that's wrong. They have to be the predators. And I I wonder if in this uh, push against ethnic studies, is it, we If we educate them, they're going to be overpower us is 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 that tied into why there's such this dislike for ethnic study programs?
0: I think on a more basic level, it's the idea that we 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 produce a script or a narrative about American history, and you know, we talk about. You know, a more perfect union. You know, a more more perfect, right? And so that assumes that you know the union has always been right, and we're just on this story of making it more right or more correct. I I don't mean right or you know conservative or liberal. And so when you start looking at the unique histories of Africans in America or African-Americans, the unique histories of the indigenous, um, unique histories of Asians in America, Asian-Americans and Latinos, of course, um, you start seeing some contradictions. So I think oftentimes, you know, American history gets taught in this way that, you know, you have these very righteous, righteous righteous-minded people who were trying to create this um, very righteous um, nation, um, uh, this righteous context and some bad things happened, but we fixed all those and everything's okay now, right? But when you dive into ethnic studies and you, for example, realize in an African-American history course or an African-American studies course, when you start getting to well, what actually happened during reconstruction, and then what happened after reconstruction? So what was going on for African Americans between say eighteen seventy seven and nineteen fifty four what what's that history? And then you start looking at how federal government was and federal state and local governments were involved in lynching, right um, these arms of the government being involved in redlining um, practices like um you know, the GI Bill and all of these and, and attacks, literal uh, constitutional attacks against uh, access for African-Americans, you start realizing, well, the story that we're being told is not actually true. Right? And that, and when people have to brush up against that, um, it, it forces one to consider, well, what is the truth of the nation and what does this nation really mean? Are we really as great as we project ourselves to be? And it's not to say that the United States is a a good or bad country. I, I Sometimes I don't think that those words actually apply more so than there are very clear institutional and systemic ways in which some groups have been treated while other groups have not. And as long as we continue to obscure those stories and those realities, then we're going to continue to have these ill conversations.
1: I apologize for not remembering the book, but I remember it was from Angela Davis. She wrote, and it really stunned me, I read this in grad school, about this myth coming out of the Civil War of Black men, newly freed Black men especially, um, being uncontrollable rapists and they couldn't control their sexual urges thus they needed more surveillance and more punishment. And she writes about how that flew in the fact that there really wasn't any evidence, especially in the South, of Black men being sexually violent at all. And especially I say the South because many, if not most white men were away fighting the war. And there should have been a lot of evidence showing that Black men were um, slaves where now because the white men were gone and the authority was gone mostly, they should have been rising up and letting their urges take the best of them. But that didn't exist. Right. Now, is that, the is that in your opinion, is that type of thing the beginning, right? It's slavery right there as slaves are getting freed. Is that the beginning of like this black men predator view that is just kind of to some extent lives on today in America?
0: uh no <laughs> it goes before that <laughs> um you know it's it's um you know there were pamphlets um and arguments um presented that um for more draconian uh, slave codes laws dictating the practice of slavery uh more draconian slave codes uh to corral and and of uh, this quote-unquote black menace Um, because obviously if someone is enslaved sooner or later, they're going to rebel and, you know, try to claim their freedom. Um, So um, white masses, uh, particularly um, the owning class, uh, really had a strong desire to make sure that the slaves were under, uh, the enslaved were under as much, surveillance and containment as possible so the stereotype of the hyper-violent hyper-sexual black male had been raging in the united states and what would become the united states before we were even established as an official country you know it was part and parcel that messaging was part and parcel to the dehumanization of africans And once that dehumanization happens, of course, it becomes that much easier to enslave an entire class of human beings, right? And so those stereotypes, now we would refer to them as stereotypes, had been arguments for the maintenance of slavery long before um, slavery was even close to coming to a close.
1: There's a direct connection, I think, if you talk a little more about it, Um, Because I think for a lot of people, at least a lot of people my age in the early 50s, um, their connection to it in their life, at least as I remember it, is one of the big outstanding ones was the urban predator myth in the late 1980s, early 1990s, where it was the um, super predator, prototype predator, this person that couldn't be controlled, and it was an urban black male. How do, how do you think that served the interests of the white class in America? Um,
0: it just reinscribed this old story, right? The, this old set of stereotypes about uh, Black masculinity, uh, particularly. And that also, of course, made it easier. That rhetoric made it easier to take ideas that were, you know, if I'm being... You know fully honest some ideas that were embraced by urban black america uh at least urban black american polit- politicians and um but i think the the where those concerns were coming from were actually from very very different places so you know um african-american mayors and um representatives uh, etc were really concerned about what was happening um, behind the crack epidemic and, and, um, and urban decay. But unfortunately, some were able to double down and take that language um, and use it as a racist ploy as well. Right? So rather than talking about how did the problems foment in the first place? Right? What were the, the actual policies and practices that produced those contexts? All of that derision got thrown onto young black males, as though young black males created that situation, right? And you know, it's always interesting to think about,, you know, um, racially coded urban problems, because you know you think about something like the heroin epidemic. Um, you know, many uh, community activists over decades had been arguing about doing something um, to help the problem of drug addiction in low-income communities, and then it doesn't become an issue, really, until it becomes the opioid crisis, because they're all basically the same drugs, right? Mm-hmm. And But once it becomes the op- opioid problem, it it's now a national problem, i.e., we can read that as a white problem, right? Because before it was just in the ghettos, to use that language, you know. But, you know, thinking about um, how policy uh, is implemented and how people live under a certain set of policies, you know, that's that's challenging stuff that dispels a lot of um, myths and half-truths and assumptions. You know, and that's, you know, that we can lead that into a conversation about, you know, the pushback against um, critical race theory and mm-hmm. what critical race theory is actually for and, and, the, and what the project of critical race theory is beyond just mm-hmm. being this political football.
1: Yeah, I had to tell a relative, I like, go, because who's kind of a Trumper, and I, I basically said, as soon as you can actually explain to me what critical race theory is, I'll be happy to have a discussion about its merits. But until that time, because I've taught it, um i taught a class race class gender in the law so i taught a little bit of crt i'm like as soon as you can have that tell me that i will have a discussion with you outside of that i'm not even broaching the issue because it's just stupid i'm arguing with a fox talking point i can't there's no way to win here because you're not listening because fox hasn't told you if i was only rich i could pay for fox to say what i wanted to say to him and he'd get into his head and we'd be all good um Okay that's just
0: pick up a critical race theory text. <laughs>
1: oh yeah. Well reading is not something these people do a lot of. Right? They're not a lot yeah, that's a, I think that is one of the um basic issues. Um, we've talked about education that under you know the the problems with the education system in some of these places but that is it. They also don't read. Right? They like their sound bite, they get it, they get told by who they believe they believe it and that's it um you can see it in the interviews if you look at comedy central or um some progressives on youtube they go and interview trump people at these trump rallies uh and it's just you're you're both saddened and laughing at the same time you know one guy's like i want to get to the bottom of why obama what obama why obama wasn't in the what uh, the oval office on 9 11. what was he doing was he on vacation was he in africa (laughs) a few years, you're a few years off there, my friend, you can't, that's not someone you can have a a logical discussion with. And it's going to get there.
0: Yeah, well, I think what becomes really dangerous is when that's happening in the policymaking process. Right. And so, you know, when you have um, politicians and others who will dismiss the work of, of an education theorist like Paulo Freire, who's considered the father of critical pedagogy. Um, You know, yeah, if you look at Freire's um, bibliography uh, and pedagogy of the oppressed, yeah, there's, there's Marxist references, but at the same time, that's not really what the book is about, right? The book is about how do you build a certain kind of classroom context in which these assumptions of power are shifted so that the teacher is in concert and community with the students looking at problems that are real problems within the communities of the students and helping students through problem posing and dialogue um, develop strategies that they can then go out and execute to change their communities for the better that's what the books about but then politicians get a hold of it and they're given like a three line synopsis of it and says beware if there's marxist uh, references in the book and it turns into something that it's not really meant to be at all and i think that's a really unfortunate thing because you know truthfully i think it's a it's a beautiful text and it's one of those kinds of books that helps me rethink what education ought to be about. Education ought to be about equipping equipping um, students with the skills to be able to access their own information, critically evaluate that information, and then use that information for the betterment of their communities. Now, who who has a problem with that idea, right? But there's a lot of people out there that do.
1: <laughs> no doubt, it's it's interesting. Um, I taught race class and gender at U- university of Illinois, Chicago in the crim department It was a gen ed that we taught and my, the chair of our department that gave me that class is like, I will take care of the complaints. I got your back. Go teach. And I'm like, what does that mean? She's like, oh no, people, kids are Cause you know, UIC is a very diverse school. She's like, well, like, we will have kids whose parents are cops. They're going to come complain. Don't worry. I got your back. Just don't, you know, don't do anything stupid. I'm like, no. And every semester I had kids go right, to go to the chair. And they would, she would say, it's an elective class. You don't have to believe everything he says. You just have to be able to pass the test and read the books. Where you shouldn't swallow a whole anything, all professors tell, you, right? But you have to pa- read the book, pass the test. If you don't want to, you're gonna have to change classes. And I would have students that would drop. And I had two great experiences. One at see was a homeless white student who came up to me after a class and he waited for everyone to leave. He goes, thank you so much for talking. I was talking about homelessness because I never hear this in school. I've been homeless for two years now. And I was like, wow. He goes, you have no idea what it meant for me to actually hear someone talk about that issue. So that was, I was shocked because of course, when you're housed, you never think about the unhoused, right? That's not in your experience. And I taught at, uh, um, in Joliet, I taught at uh, University of St. Francis and I had a black athlete stay after class. And he told me virtually the same thing. So I was talking about race and the justice system. He's like, you never hear this here. I can't believe someone's actually talking about it. He goes, these kids here, they never hear this. Um, It was amazing to hear that. So those were all great for me, but it really, it kind of changed me because I thought I was doing, I was trying to, I guess I was, my hope was to do something like that. I just, it was nice to hear that I was actually achieving it, but I also got complaints because kids didn't want to hear about the bad things I was teaching about. Okay. Let's fast forward a little bit to two recent-ish cases in America, George Zimmerman and the Kyle Rittenhouse cases. The systems, the criminal justice systems failed. The the police failed, the prosecutors failed, the judges failed, the juries failed. So my question is why? And let me give you my answer, and I want you to comment on it. Tell me I'm nuts. But is it, I'm I'm just going to say, for the majority of those systems, they are white-based systems. Not entirely, but mostly. Both Kyle Rittenhouse and George Zimmerman got off in jury trials, if I'm not mistaken. Why are those jurors allowing Rittenhouse and and Zimmerman to do that? Because they're worried about not letting white people defend themselves from the horde of blacks. I mean, I'm trying to figure out what is behind that. What would make them in that jury room? Is it just peer pressure? What's going on there? That they would look at those situations, and say, yeah, you know what you did was okay. Especially in the George Zimmerman case, I thought he was the person that violated the stand your ground law. I think he had he had the opportunity to be shot. Not the kid who died. He was the first one that started following him. To me, that's enough. I don't like that law And then stretch stretched. Of the world i think it's a disgusting horrible racist law um but i'm just wondering what your thoughts are on that because i want to know what i'm trying i know we're trying to get in people's heads but what's in there is it is it purely race based is it fair is it fair of urban predators why or is it just because we don't like black people <laughs> Or is it all the above?
0: <laughs> I'd say it's all the above. I mean, I think it's um, uh, it's I watched a lot more of the um, Zimmerman trial than the Rittenhouse trial, and um, it was the way that race was um, deployed, um, in in that trial, uh, especially the way that Rachel Gentil was characterized. Uh, by the prosecution. Um, it, it was just it was just hard, a hard thing to watch. And at the same time, I think in the Rittenhouse case, um, you have this, you know th- this visually really innocent looking kid, right um, who inserted himself into a situation. And throughout the entire trial, I just kept thinking, what if my kid armed himself to the teeth and went into, you know, the middle of a protest and decided to play the police? What would happen? And so I think that all of the things that we've been talking about thus far all kind of Converge on these cases, you know, the assumptions about black male criminality and black hyperviolence, violence um, about the innocence of, of non black folks, um, or at least white passing white folks um, and you know this history uh, that we have of ill conclusions um, from juries. Um, and misinformation and strategies of misinformation being used um, by trial lawyers. Uh, I think all of that is a reflection of how the system works and how the system was designed to allow such, you know, shenanigans at times. Um, And and for me, the, the Zimmerman case was especially tragic, as you were pointing out, because You know, it was clear that the evidence was was saying, you know, you had this teenage boy who was saying, somebody's following me. Somebody's following me, right? Oh, my God, somebody's coming up to me, right? So that positioning becomes really important. You know, he's the one that walks into a gunfight without a gun. (laughs) But he's the one that ends up dead. Right. And, you know, Zimmerman being taller, um, heavier, you know, maybe not as fast on his feet. You know, I always thought of it as a situation where the guy just got beat up. Right. He tried to try to go at a kid and kid got the best of him. And so, you know, that means that, oh, my God, now this kid's going to kill me. I mean, it's just to me, it never really passed the smell test, and and Rittenhouse was pretty much the same way. But again, I do think this it's reflective of all the things that we're talking about and how the American criminal justice system has a tendency to work um, against the favor of people who are not white. So
1: we're going to take about a Chicago case, um, Laquan McDonald. Murdered by Jason Van Dyke, shot sixteen times uh, while basically walking away from the officer. Never confronted the officer. Had a bunch of cops around him. And the tragedy of the case is the cops that were around him at the time were doing exactly what everyone wants twenty first century policing to be. They notice the kid is non responsive. He's either he's non responsive either because he's having a mental health crisis or drugs. They know he has a little knife. They know if they confront him, it's going to get violent. It's going to be they don't want it to go that way. So they're trying to find a way to get a taser. So if it does go bad, they can just tase him, not shoot him. But they're trying to find ways of cordoning him off so he doesn't hurt the public, but at the same time, giving him space and time. So that's got to be said, first of all, about the incident. But Jason Van Dyke comes on the, the, in the situation, shoots him 16 times. And I want your comments on this, because this is the part that's always struck me on this. Officers are supposed to arrest anyone that commits a crime. Right? Anyone. They see a crime, they intervene, they arrest. Jason Van Dyke shot that kid 16 times for no reason. What happened? Ten officers on the scene did nothing. In fact, they did more than nothing. They covered it up. And I believe some of the cars, because there was dash cam footage of the shooting, but not all of them. Most of the cars were turned away from the incident suspiciously. So their dash cams couldn't see what was going on. And you look at the chain of command through the police department, they all saw it. his boss, the boss's boss, all the way through the top of the police department, Superintendent McCarthy at the time, all saw it and did nothing but it for an internal investigation. What does it say about a justice system and its response to violence against Black men, young Black men especially, that none of the cops, they all watched a felony, they all watched a murder perpetrated by one of their own against a young Black man for seeming no reason. And they did nothing.
0: That, that's 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 as old as police departments.
1: <laughs> right. But and, that's like and, 2016, right? So this is yeah. America thinks, white America, a lot of white America thinks, oh, that's the 1950s, 1940s, right. 30s, it, 20s, 1870s. We're past that. We're better than that. That wouldn't happen anymore.
0: Well, when I first heard about the story of... Uh, uh, I uh, think Sergeant or Detective John Burge.
1: Yes, Detective.
0: Yeah, Detective Burge and um his little black box. Yep. You know that was in the 70s and 80s, right? You know, and that was so egregious, and everybody knew it was happening, right? And so I think, and and for those of you out there that don't know what I'm talking about, just Google john birch and you can get the full story um but <sighs> police departments have historically always had a way of protecting its own you know under pretty much any circumstance that comes comes what come what may you know and and oftentimes malfeasance committed against um you know, historically marginalized communities, whether that be black folks or Latinos or um, or Asian um, community members, have systematically been covered up. You know it's it's part and parcel to pl- the history of policing in the United States. And it's not it's it's not to say that there are never any cover-ups, for police malfeasance against white folks, because that happens too, obviously. But the egregious nature to which it happens to non-white folks is a very well-documented history. And, um, you know, and this is why I think it's important that people recognize that all of these things have very, very clear histories and, and, and not made up histories, like, you know, actual documented evidentiary history, right? So if you don't know that history, and this is one of the themes um, that I've explored in in, in my um, perspectives, if you don't know that history, then you are coming at the situation with incomplete information. And so what has to happen is that once you're made aware of that historic relation, in this case, the historic relationship Uh, between law enforcement and the African-American community Um, once you become aware of that history you have to start thinking about things a little bit differently so so I I always I was teaching a class uh, I think it was a class I was doing some uh, it was a workshop on um, uh, hip-hop pedagogy and We uh, one of the participants said that she didn't really like hip hop because she couldn't understand the lyrics. And so we started looking at this. uh, I started giving her the lyrics to uh, N.W.A.'s F the Police and, you know, classic song and Mm -hmm. uh, a song that has been roundly misinterpreted, even though Ice Cube's introductory verse is very clear and what he's talking about, right? And in that verse, he talks about the presence of black cops as bad cops as well, you know, because they'll slam you down to the street top, black police showing out for the white cop. So it's not about whether or not the police officer is black, white, Latino, Asian, or otherwise. It's about their agents of a particular institution that has this very clear history of mistreatment and manipulation of black and brown bodies. And until we are open and very clear about that and until law enforcement, the law enforcement community itself finds a critical mass to be able to talk about that honestly and reflect on those practices and and change those practices, we're always gonna have these ill relationships. It's not about trying to you know, wag a finger at anybody. It's about trying to rethink and reconstruct our institutions so that they are responsive to the whole community and not certain parts of the community.
1: Yeah, I mean, in that Chicago, in Chicago plays out ice cubes, like black cops showing up for the white cops. Two of the last police superintendents in Chicago, um, th- all three have been black. They just appointed the latest one, Snelling today. He just passed city council today. He's Black. The last one, David Brown, was Black. And before him, Eddie Johnson, all Black, two of three local. And were the Chicago police more kind to Black bodies under Eddie Johnson? No. And I, I or under David Brown, or now going to be under Larry Snelling? No. And I told, I had to tell a, a group of rappers and the rap community that got asked to speak. And they're talking about a, ma- a rapper got murdered by the police and how. They're a city, they're going to sue and all this stuff. And I'm like, you can sue all you want. They've The cost of business is factored in. You get your money, that's great, family, but it isn't going to stop anything. And, and they were talking about how they need a black superintendent. I'm like, if you think the white cop on the street cares about the racial, uh, the color of the skin of their boss up in their superintendent's office, you're nuts. And by the way, how do you think those cops have advanced? Right, and the mafia, because he knows where the bodies are buried. Well, they know, that's how they get up there. Right, if they're loudmouthed about reform and, and racial justice also, they don't get there. That's just the reality. And they were. Un- I got brought in by a, a black community activist. And he when I went up there, he goes, tell the truth. That's why I brought you here. They're not going to like it, but they need to hear it. Right, and I was like, oh, okay, they didn't like it. Uh, really quickly, I want a couple more questions, but I want to turn to the piece that my, my, your colleague and my friend sent me it was on Racial Groundhog's Day. And I just found this, so it just hit me. Um, and I think, and I'll get to it at the end of the questions about how this relates to Chicago. Can you explain for our, our audience really quickly what is a racial groundhog day?
0: Racial groundhog day is when um, uh, a a a white male um, goes into um, a predominantly minority space, shoots up a bunch of people. Kills and maims a bunch of people. And then the media comes out, um, presents wall-to-wall coverage. The pundits come out and talk about it. Um, Commissions are instituted. People are screaming for reform. We have this conversation about mental health and gun violence. We do all that and then after a couple of weeks the whole story dies down right and then it gets quiet and then a few days later a white man walks into a predominantly black space or predominantly minority space armed to the teeth and starts killing people and that story plays out again and again and again and again and you it's it's so bad that you can literally time it as to how the events will play out. And, you know, whether, and it does not matter who you're talking about, whether it's uh, Trayvon Martin, um, Mike Brown, Philando Castile, uh, Laquan McDonald, um, Brianna Taylor, um, (laughs) George Floyd. I mean, all of this all plays out again and again and again and again and again. And then of course, all of the, you know, attacks on synagogues, um, the shooting up of a black church in South Carolina. I mean, they all play the same story again and again and again. And I think the thing that's most frustrating to me is (laughs) we find ourselves at that point again, and people still keep asking, well, why does this happen? It's like, well, (laughs) roll the tape back. (laughs) You had an army of pundits uh, and scholars and activists telling you exactly why this happened. It always reminds me when, you know, um, an uprising happens and people start asking, oh, my God, why are these people burning up their communities? And it's just like it's the same thing as the 65 Watts riots and the Kerner Commission reports. Right it's the exact same thing you could literally photocopy pages from report to report to report and re and reconstruct those uh, these reports it's the same thing it's the same process it's and and what's even more frustrating is that people air their righteous indignation about these events happening but then the story quiets down everybody gets lulled back into their space of warmth and comfort, and then happens again. It's Groundhog Day.
1: And that was my next question. Do you think many of the whites that really give a shit or is it just feigned moral outrage, social media activism, by liking a post or posting Charleston Strong, but yet they don't change their voting patterns to change the circumstances.
0: Yeah, um, I think a lot of that happens. Uh, I think one of the more frustrating things that came out of uh, the summer of 2020 was the phenomenon of, you know, performative anti-racism. You know, it's like, oh, I'm gonna put on a pen, and that means I'm anti-racist. Or, oh yeah, you know, give me a stack of books to read that I haven't really gotten through or, what documentary should I watch? You know, it's like, I've watched Thirteenth, 14 times. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, that happens a lot. And, but I think that is, you know, reflective of a lot of what we talked about, you know, over the last half hour, that, you know, the way that systemic func- systemic racism and all forms of systemic oppression, for that matter, functions is by obscuring itself and you know hiding in these crevices of people's daily practices and daily lives you know a lot of people say would ultimately say i don't have time to be go out and be an activist right without recognizing that well you can be an activist in the in in the ballot box right you can be an activist in your own neighborhood you know i'm not necessarily a huge activist i talk about a lot of things and i and i try to help guide people and 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 ask you know really serious questions but i don't know if i would call myself an activist i think there are other people who are far more charismatic far more interesting quite frankly and and far more talented at that kind of work than i am but what i can do is i can help share knowledge and i can act on the knowledge that i that i have acquired And I think that that's what we have to do. I think a lot of what my um, perspective posts are about is really just how do we think, what do we think education really is and what it's for, right? If it's if people aren't being liberated and communities aren't being helped, then why do we have all of this, right? And so what I always hope at the end of the day is that when people walk away from one of these stories. They walk away with something in their consciousness changing because many of us, you know, we're born into this water, right? And as we swim around through this water across our lives, you know, it takes a long time to learn how to breathe outside that water. You know, this isn't, um, you don't just wake up one morning and you're suddenly anti-racist. It's a, it's a constant struggle of looking at your own individual practices in relation to larger systemic and institutional practices and then proceeding accordingly. It takes time, right?
1: Yeah, I feel like I've lived your Groundhog Day so much in doing in trying to do activism and reform in Chicago, police reform. I remember when Laquan McDonald, the tape of the Laquan McDonald murder got released. It was on, I think, the Wednesday before Thanksgiving of 2015, I believe. And towards the spring of 2016, as we're heading into the summer, I'm working with members of the Police Accountability Task Force, and that is Lori Lightfoot, the former mayor of Chicago, Joe Ferguson, the former inspector general, and then a bunch of people represented some liberal groups in Chicago who have never done anything of policing. By that time, I was 20 years into my activism, and I didn't know any of these people. And they were mostly from organizations we ignored because they were useless on the issue. And I got up and I said, listen, guys, it's April. We have about six weeks to get something passed because when summer hits and the summer weekends and it gets warm, violence is going to skyrocket. And none of the politicians got time to pass police reform when violence numbers are up. So we got to get something now. And all these groups started talking to me about how I didn't know what I was talking about. Right. And I don't, all this. And to her credit, Lori's credit, I'm not a big Lori Lightfoot mayoral fan, but to her credit, she's like, you know what? Maybe some of the new people that are in this room that haven't been doing this work for 20 years should listen to the people who are, have been in doing this for 20 years. They may know a thing or two. And to our success, we did get something passed in the fall, but the summer was they took a break. The only one wanted to know part of it. We got something passed in the fall, but we only got two thirds of what we want passed And that community commission, which eventually got passed under Lori maybe a year and a half ago, a year ago. It took another six years, seven years to get that passed because there was no appetite in Chicago for police reform. They didn't have that triggering event, right? That one event, like the Van Dyke tape, the Laquan McDonald murder tape coming out. And I tried to tell people, it's like, you have that one time. You have that very short period of time where you'll hit it. And if you can't hit it, it's over. You just can't get things passed. So, and sadly, even with Burge and all of that, all those years, activists just kept missing that short window, depending on politicians. Oh, no, they'll get something passed. They ain't doing something six months. You, you can't pay them. They don't care. They're worried about violence, right? Because in the end of all the things that are bad for politicians, especially in like Chicago, um violence is the is the number one hotbed controlling people controlling them. you know don't let now and you see in 2020 and past the co- you know dealing with the COVID violence i call it because i think a lot of it was related to COVID. oh my god we got to stop the violence downtown okay and then it started spreading to the north white side we got to stop wait a minute where was that outrage when it was in inglewood on the south and west sides where was that it's been there for 40 years you did. You've been in city council for 20. You've done nothing. Are you wearing opioids? <laughs> right. <laughs> right. right. Are you a racist asshole? Is that what you're telling me? You don't care as long as it sits in those communities. It's fine. Why is your urgency now that it's downtown? Well, it's going to affect the economic engine of Chicago. Okay. So the lives of the daily lives of all the people in those black and brown communities don't mean anything to you unless they're bringing economic, you know, money into the city. So I think I've lived that day, uh, unfortunately, a thousand times. That's why that that piece um, just hit me because it's so right. Um, well, and we just you. let and we just let people getting gunned down. I was just in Charleston, and it's like I swear to God, I try to keep up on all these incidents and everything that's going on. There are far too many black men that are killed by police for me to remember all their names off the top of my head. Um, so, anyways. Um, Yeah. Yeah, that piece really.
0: I'm I'm sorry. I'm right here. I was just uh, running out of battery.
1: No worries. Okay. Well, we're wrapping up anyways. Um, Professor Joseph Flynn, thank you so much for sitting down with us. We really appreciate it. I really appreciate you taking the time.
0: Oh, I I really do appreciate the uh, invitation, Tracy. And uh, it's a wonderful show and,
1: you know, more than happy. Thanks again to Dr. Flynn for joining us. We really appreciate it. Very important conversation to have, the right is fighting very hard to erase history, but and they want to prohibit people, specifically from making connections to slavery and Jim Crow, all the way to racialized policing in 2023. Kyle Wittenhouse's verdict is based in white supremacy, the same white supremacy that impacts policing in black and brown communities in Chicago and urban areas all over the country. The same kind of white supremacy that was involved in the January 6th insurrection. And just remember, ladies and gentlemen, when you try to connect all the dots there, just remember how many of the ex-military and ex active police that actually were involved in that incident. right? In Chicago, you can, you can obviously, and in the Midwest and the U.S., there's a direct line tying the activities of John Burge torturing somewhere between one and 200 people in the false convictions, to the, operate, the activities of the special operations section um, 20 years later, to the murder of George Floyd, it's all connected. Ignoring it prohibits us from finding a solution. That's part of the reason the alt-right wants us to not make those connections. Thank you for tuning in. We really appreciate it. Next week, we have an interview with Danielle Parisi Ruffado, Managing Director from the Family Law and Protective Orders Division at Ascend Justice, discussing Karina's bill, a really important bill about uh, making filling a gap in um, Illinois law that allows abusers, people who have a order of protection or emergency order of protection filed against them, It allows them to keep their weapons. Um, This law would then mandate that the judge at the time can check a box and order whoever serves them that order of protection, the police, the sheriffs, to seize his guns immediately. It also provides the authorization of search warrants to go and search the house and seize the weapons. Um, Obviously, if you look at the mass shootings and the high correlation between um, domestic violence in the past of the mass shooter and Um, I'm eventually going into mass shootings. This is vital. Karina and her daughter, Danielle, were murdered um, from someone who should have had his gun taken away. So I'll be back with you next week with that interview.